but you know where the pitfall is. It has to number one, dive with the kids school and daycare schedule. So when the kids are at school, mom is coding or, you know, or, or learning about big data or networking or cybersecurity, right? I mean, very ambitious and they are hungry as hell. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pour of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 59 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalvo. Joining us from Sydney, Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good morning, David. Hi there, Kevin. All right. Our guest for today is the director of the Digital Leadership Institute, a Brussels-based international NGO promoting inclusive digital transformation and recognized by the UN in 2019 for its global leadership in diversity and inclusion in digital fields. In 2018, Google and the Financial Times placed her among the 100 digital pioneers of Europe. And in the same year, she received a coveted Global Mobile Industry Leader Award for her grassroots work promoting digital equity around the world. Joining us today for a round of cocktails is Cheryl Miller Van Dyke. Hi, Cheryl. Great to have you on the show. Hi, Kevin. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's right. our pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you for joining us. Uh, some nice accolades there. It's uh, nice to be recognized. <laughs> Indeed it is, because it's pretty thankless work, I got to say, otherwise. So, you know, the the occasional pat on the back is what I live off of, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. And so tell, tell us a little bit about that work. You, you've you got the uh, Digital Leadership, Leadership Institute. What led you to co-found that institute in 2014? Um, you know, it started kind of as a side job, as all the best things do. You know, mm-hmm. I uh, volunteered to launch uh, um, an, a nonprofit promoting STEM skills to girls. And as I got more and more absorbed in that, it kind of took on a life of its own because, you know, the challenge is pretty um, pervasive and profound. Um, So, yeah, uh, then I started to make my way in kind of the the grants and fund making um, environment in Europe. And um, and then we launched the, the formal nonprofit to tackle some of the challenges that we recognized as being kind of the most uh, pertinent, I guess. And unfortunately, like I said, very persistent. What drives your passion in this area? Well, you know, I'm I'm quite the business person at heart. And I always have a, I have a little bit of disdain for that passion idea because okay. um, no, it's nothing personal. It's a, kind of a, a language narrative. I, I try to move away from because I think it kind of diminishes what the what the challenges in front of us and also the viability and the sustainability of social effort that is tackling challenges of that kind. So um, part of it is, of course, that I really care about the subject matter. The other thing is, I think that there's a huge need. And um, over the course of, of working on this topic at the really at the cold face for many years now, my team and I have innovated some approaches that really address the challenge. So it's just, here's the, here's the need, here's the solution. And, you know, if we can make that work also from a um, kind of from a business sense, then, um, you know, we're doing, we're doing things right. And I think what I've loved seeing is the um, evolution of business models to really include 
that kind of, you know, the triple bottom line discussion of people, planet and profit. We worked in the nonprofit sector. It's just a, a choice. I also have a, a for-profit company um, in tech consulting. Um, but I, but that has been really a joy to see that we can do stuff that really matters and more or less make a living doing it. I want to get onto the solutions you referred to uh, shortly, but I want to just jump back to you mentioned we talked about passion for a second there, which is interesting that you you grabbed on that and said, you know, I don't like to use that word passion because I don't think it helps the cause. So I just wanted to understand that a little bit better because passion and focus and drive, you know, that's often many, many books are written about why these are important things. And so, so just get back to me on how that doesn't help the cause. Call me a maverick. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's more about um, when you say it's a passion project, especially as a woman, um, yeah. then that's like, oh, that's cute. And then it's kind of relegated to the sidelines. So okay. and I think this even I mean, I love for it to be become the narrative and the, you know, the vocabulary that we use, um, because then it does make our nine to five existence is much more enriching. Um, but I just you know, I'm careful about language and, and like in, in all senses, you know, I speak like six languages. Um, and also in terms of the, the challenges that we're trying to tackle, uh, we've got to uh, be very careful about that. You know, the risk of uh, relegating someone to kind of a secondary actor or, um, you know, not uh, not giving the importance to the subject that it desi- that it deserves. So mm-hmm. I guess that's, you know, and I didn't mean to go off on a tangent in this direction. No, I, I just find it interesting that, that, that you picked up on that, that word. That was interesting, and you've clearly thought about you know, why why you don't like the phrase in the context. Oh, bring of what you it, do. David! I, I've got tons of those. So okay, but yes. <laughs> but I mean, what's really interesting is like you know when you look at, for example, three hundred and sixty degree evaluations in companies. That there are certain termino- terminology that are exclusively exclusively reserved for women in organizations that are definitely pejorative. Mm. I'd love to let you guess that what there's one in particular in the UK that um, surfaced as being only used for women. Um, it's not aggressive, but do you want to do you want to make yeah, a stab um, at what um, abrasive abrasive really. So it's uniquely, it's a term uniquely reserved for women. And I think, you know, language is so important. I also talk about like media portrayal and what kind of, you know, the Gina Davis uh, Institute for Media and Gender, where they really talk about if she can see it, she can be it. So um, I think, you know, what I really love is that, that, for example, this word passion is being, uh, it is part of the normal discourse. But I always bristle a bit when I get labeled in that, that way. Oh, that's, you know, that that's so nice that you, you know, care about that. <laughs> then it's like, okay, yeah, but this is kind of diminishing the seriousness of the issue, right? Yes. And yes. what, and the attention and the resources that, that it deserves. So, like I say, I never would have guessed abrasive women. There you go. <laughs> yeah, abrasive women about. only for women. Yeah, yeah, right. Maybe I can write the book called that, you know. And you would t- actually think the total opposite, to be honest. Look, you, and you mentioned uh, words exclusive for women, and actually the mission of the Institute is about inclusivity, the digital transformation. What does inclusivity mean in the context, and in this context, and how do we, how we, how do we achieve it? 
Thank you so much for asking that question, David, for real, because, you know, of course, I've looked at the work of Toro Cloud and, and other the eminent guests you've had on this podcast already. And I see, you know, that this is our definition of digital transformation is really this macro thing that is happening to society that's really shaking the foundations of humanity. There's no no understating, right, the impact that digital transformation has on our lives. You know, and I always talk about um, mobile telephony um, as, you know, the Internet of Things or, you know, just smart objects of, of course, the cloud, as you know, the, the com- consumer cloud, but also the industrial cloud that nobody really talks about as as lay people, you know, although we're enjoying all the advantages or uh, apparent advantages of, of this um, this bounty that the transformation is bringing us. But if you look at this really from, you know, again, I haven't, I haven't yet written the book. I'm, I'm getting there, but I've kind of formulated this idea of like the, the digital transformation inclusion model or inclusion maturity model, you know, and we look at things like access and skill sets and um, leadership and so this is uh, really not what's happening on the individual organizational level, you know, which is a lot of where technical solutions come into play, you know, and how do we how do we um, prepare an organization for digital transformation? Um, but if we look at society as a whole, as an organization, then we really see that kind of the afterthought, you know, again, the triple P idea, people, product and processes, right, which we use at the organizational level to drive digital transformation, um, if we explode that to the global, uh, you know, to the human population, and also look at the impact on the planet, then we start to see how ill-prepared uh, hum- humanity is for the digital transformation, how, like William Gibson said, you know, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. This is the reality as far as uh, as the global population goes. So, so we're really in a luxurious position to talk about adoption of the cloud or to, or martini of you know how we can make uh, companies do their uh, uh, oversee their digital transformation in a better way, which this c- clearly does. However, taking this arm's length perspective, right? Not everyone has access. Not everyone has the skills necessary to participate and and certainly not lead. So it's really from that perspective that we talk about inclusion. And um, the, the disproportionately impacted in, ter- in those terms, um, I could even say negatively impacted. So the ones who have fewest acts, lowest access rates, lowest or lower, no di- digital skills, very little representation in leadership and decision making are women across the board. So no matter where you are in the world, women are at a disadvantage as far as being included in the digital transformation. And then, you know, based on research from the the World Economic Forum, um, we know that the average group of women is more inclusive than the average group of men. It's a really interesting statistic. So kind of, so to me, this is a bit the edge of the wedge. So if we can meet, reach the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable of the most, most vulnerable with access, with skills, with leadership, uh, even promoting entrepreneurial action and, you know, and, and readiness for the quote future workforce, which is actually the present workforce. Um, if we can reach those most vulnerable, then we're doing something really super. And then we know that we are, um, actually able to keep, to get everyone on board 
in this digital transformation. I mean, when you talk about on a global scale like that, it sounds daunting. Uh, so where, where do you start? It is daunting, but that's why, you know, my, my refrain is start with girls and women, because mm-hmm. obviously that's half of the planet. And it's surprising how hard it is to deliver that message. Um, but you know, it's kind of the symptom is actually perpetuating the, the, the problem because we don't have women in leadership who are determining priorities for, um, resource, for investment in digital skills and access and, and these kinds of things. So we get a lot of business as usual, you know, even in the grant making, even in public sector where we expect the leadership on these topics in particular. Um, so, so we start with girls and women, um, and then we look at what the best practices are because heaven knows there's plenty of that out there, right? There's a lot of action on these topics. There's more and more, and it's kind of like the more the merrier, right? Because whatever works, uh, we've got to get it out there. Just throw it against the wall, and whatever sticks, we replicate and scale, right? So... Yeah. Um, yeah, so start with girls and women. You've identified the problem and, and the, the demographic where it's impacting the most. Uh, how do you get involved in the solution process? Well, you know, I'm like, now I'm like, a, a, you know, two bo- the two-body um, dilemma uh, because part of me is doing the, you know, the hands-on grassroots stuff. Um, and that's really where I've come from is like, okay, this doesn't, it's, it's not working. Let's just fix it like this. Um, being a very action oriented and outcome oriented person and, you know, and then, um, innovating just constantly iterating until we get the magic formula. Um, and that's also really about being entrepreneurial and having that really business kind of starter mindset, right? And innovator mindset. Um, until we've come to like the the magic formula, which is still in the process of, of evolution. Um, so doing things, just doing stuff, right? Do it, see what works and stick with what works and junk what doesn't work or, you know, or park it so that you might be able to reuse it later at another point. Um, so that's one thing is the, the hands-on stuff on the ground in the, at the coal face, right? Doing Pro, uh, running programs that specifically target our most vu- vulnerable and overlooked demographic that's girls and women the I'm other thing those, is sorry i was just going to say i'm guessing some of those programs you're talking about are educational type programs like upskilling type programs absolutely absolutely uh, if i can I, i'd love to get to that in a second yeah. you know kind of depending on what our what our time looks like but um that you know the double body phenomenon is the the other part is like of course, as you learn from what you're doing, then it's really um, an opportunity to to take your learnings and then try to influence policy setting. So really from the top down, this is what we know from best practices. Let's uh, institute this, um, create a kind of European objectives or national obje- objectives, global objectives. And this is what has translated to my work in all of those areas you know, is just to be able to then become the advocate at that level where we need the decision makers to be getting the message who can say, all right, now we need to invest in this and these priorities, because that is what will prepare us for an inclusive digital transformation where large, large swaths of the population 
don't get left behind or don't get relegated to second or even third um, class citizen status. So that's yeah. really the, that's the the thrust of the work that I do. So, so the kind of the kind of uh, uh, strategies uh, that the organizations would be looking at um, deploying once they've identified these problems would be something like what you've in your keynote, keynote referred to inclusive and sustainable upskilling within, within an organization. Uh, addressing issues inclusivity and the gender gap. We have to bring IT skills content, which is readily available on various platforms to audiences that are overlooked, was the quote from that uh, keynote. So upskilling, education, that's obviously a key initiative that organisations should be looking at to, to, to bring women into the fold of this digital transformation journey and to be able to contribute, contribute the way they should be contributing with everyone else. Anything else Absolutely. you want to add to that regarding, to regarding the, the, the education and upskilling process and how that should work? Three things. One, um, that it's permanent, so it's not just a one-off thing. Second, okay. hire, so hire women. Third, yes. pay them. So it's not just about the skilling part, because what what we've encountered is, um, and just a small note on upskilling, this could actually mean skilling, period, digital yeah. skilling, you yeah. know, because there may be no real basis for this or maybe digital literacy as a minimum. Right. But um, this is this is not necessarily about uh, changing or, or evolving a skill set, developing a skill set, unless like I often like to stress you're really looking at um, executive faculties, right? Um, good decision-making, good project management, good, these kind of transversal skills where you can say, damn, I can count on her to now let's just like buttress that with some technical skills and and you've got a winning proposition. So um, hire and pay. So just hire women, really, because mm -hmm. we know that, and, and this has been the mantra for 20 years, I don't know, you know, that um, this, this, leads to innovation, leads to better bottom line, all kinds of advantages, but basically ignored. And I think if you want to be a really class startup competitor, that this is the direction that you need to go outside the box. I mean, really outside the box means not the, um, you know, the echo chamber of highly educated white young males, nothing personal, but this is, you know, kind of what the startup uh, environment looks and smells like. And that's clearly not innovative regardless of how innovative that individual might seem, right? Truly innovative is, wow, someone who has absolutely no uh, idea about what we're doing here and can bring a, a perspective that's completely different and maybe, you know, really ratchet things up a bit. The other point I made about, so hire them, just hire women. Second, uh, and, and, and advance them, hire them, advance them. Second, pay them. Uh, because, you know, women have also missed out on the whole startup ecosystem because, you know, you've got to leave your family for three months to participate in a startup boot camp or six weeks of, of, uh, of coding, right? It's like, yeah, I might have that inclination, but unfortunately, due to these kind of traditional caregiver roles, right? And the same reason why we've seen a mass exodus of women out of the workforce during COVID, um, I just to throw a statistic in there. Before COVID in the U.S., the women, women made up 51% of the workforce. They now make up 37%. So oh, wow. every time you see those LinkedIn posts about, uh, you know, people leaving the, the job, uh, job market, ask mm -hmm. yourself how many are women? Because I can tell you it's a disproportionately large number. And this 
falls back to, unfortunately, it's just, you know, a, a social thing. Um, but that means a lot of, of missed opportunities for women themselves and for society, given that innovation, given those other opportunities, I think. So pay them because what we've seen works is, I mean, I can deploy, I mean, you know, you know there's no shortage of content. And this is another one of my uh, key refrains. There's no shortage of high-end tech skill curriculum out there. You know, just just Cisco's been around 20 years doing, um, you know, the C- Cisco Networking Academy. But then look at AWS, and I have to disclaim I'm a, I'm a cloud ambassador for AWS, but just look at all the content that's available there, literally in every direction you can possibly fantasize about, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's AI or machine learning or big data. So why aren't women here, right? Why not? Mm-hmm. I can assure you it's not because they don't want to. I can assure you that, you know, a large uh, percentage of women and women entrepreneurs, as a matter of fact, are driven to entrepreneurship out of financial necessity. So they look like me. They're, they've been marginalized by traditional career paths. They are out there. They're hungry. They're looking at an empty retirement fund and they're knowledgeable and, uh, and, and motivated. So where are they? Big question mark. I don't know. I'm trying to find them, right? And skill them up and into startup, uh, using, uh, high end digital skills. So not just, you know, not using Word, not being able to use Word documents or nothing against Microsoft, but. I mean, I'm really, you know, talking about programs and we've innovated stuff like that, literally going and grabbing all the content out there, building a curriculum. But you know where the pitfall is? It has to, number one, drive with the kids' school and daycare schedule. So when the kids are at school, mom is coding or, you know, or or learning about big data or networking or cybersecurity, right? I mean, very ambitious and they are hungry as hell. Hungry as hell. Um, COVID might have thrown a monkey wrench into this, you know, because our plates are full. You, you literally asked me before, Kevin, like, can we talk about the missed opportunity of, for digital transformation for COVID? Look, uh, women are actually leaving the, the workforce because they're leaving financial stability because of their plates being, you know, flow, overflowing with, um, responsibility. Um, but how, time. Yes. Uh, and again, uh, kind of falling back into those uh, social pitfalls, I guess, of, of you know, gendered roles. Um, so this makes, even though I've got all these great and the content is out there, we have to, you know, present it. We have to bring it to them in a way that's unique. So that's all the stuff that we've innovated, not only, you know, matching it with the needs of the women specifically, bringing it to them in all women groups, because this is about kind of diffusing the fear factor and the lack of confidence factor around startup and tech, which is really the canary in the coal mine. Like, uh, you know, if, if we can get women doing tech startup, tech driven startup, we know that we're really, you know, firing on all pistons. And that's a huge economic opportunity, I think, not to speak about the, the financial opportunity for the individual girls yeah. and women, right? Um, but so bring it to them in a way that, that works for them. And also, you know, like, so we, we formulated this whole approach. The funding got cut by the national government, unfortunately. Um, but the idea was actually to integrate these women that we've done the boot camp with into companies and then handhold them through higher end training 
with our approach, right? To while they're getting paid, because that is really the key thing. They've got to be able to be remunerated for their time because it is about opportunity cost. Like mm. I'm doing this, therefore I'm not doing that, that and that. Um, and we see that those other things are kind of taking over even to the point of making, um, you know, financial independence had a serious question for women, which is not only about now, but it's also long-term, like I said about, um, you know, pension and retirement. And so there's an awful lot of jobless women right now. Uh, you know, my sons even said, well, that's their choice. And that, you know, I got to ask, you know, how much, how much choice is really involved in that? We make choices as families. We make choices as a unit, as a couple even, right? Um, and if you just look at your own partner and say, hey, I would really love her to have this. What if she became an, an AI expert? Like I could deliver that with her. I could actually make that happen. Um, but then you got to look at your personal situation and say, hey, you know, right? We're making financial choices. We're making well-being choices. And, um, you know, COVID has really meant a huge step backwards in terms of women's financial independence, um, of women's engagement in the workforce, and a lot of things that I'm therefore working on at the global level, like with the G20. Well, you mentioned so, the, uh, the the startup ecosystem and how you'd like to see more opportunities for women in the startup ecosystem and opportunities within uh, for women within the enterprise to upskill and to advance through the hierarchy, corporate hierarchy. So starting with the um, uh, startup ecosystem, is the solution there to have uh, venture capital funds exclusive for women-orientated uh, startups or startups uh, benefiting women? Absolutely. I mean, it's like, well, we always disclaim, oh, how unfortunate that is, but this is a reality. You know, sorry. I mean, we see, like, you can literally heat map the sexism. There's some great research on that in the EU. Um, you know, same kind of startups, same requests, same, you know, key intersection of like digital and green, right? That's the twin uh, disruption that Europe is really investing in right now. Um, and, and everyone, hopefully, right? Um, same kind of, uh, of profiles and women get dispro- like maybe a third or a tenth of the kind of, of seed funding or, you know, um, any kind of VC uh, engagement that all male and mixed teams get. So women alone on their own is a, a literally a non-starter. So there's there's definitely a question of sexism there. And I worked long, long and hard on the, you know, let's stimulate a startup in tech and using tech by women. So that's one half of the equation. But the other is no matter what I do here, uh, if we don't actually get the funding and the resource to make those startups launch and sustainable over the long run, you know, this is a wasted, wasted effort. So, you know, fortunately, we've seen a lot more of the of that action female friendly funding. Um, I think it's an unfortunate reality, but if that's the way it's going to happen, if it's got to happen that way, then do it. And, you know, I mean, the, my premise has always been, you know, you know, it's that Einstein thing. If you keep doing what you've always done, you can't be, you know, you're crazy if you, if you think you're going to get a different outcome. 
Um, I think the unicorns are actually going to be in those areas, right, where they have not been exposed and they have not been addressed in a robust manner um, in terms of opportunities and resources. So I think smart investors will be actually going out of their way to find uh, those the, the magic mix. Um, but it really does mean shedding a lot of our unconscious biases. Because like what we see with investment in particular is women get loans from from women uh, loan officers. Men get loans from male men loan officers. So how do we unpack, you know, what the loan officers are thinking, right? It's the same in the startup ecosystem, you know, in the pitch competitions. And I'm, I'm thankful to be asked to come in and judge those things. But I can always see, I can literally see the gears turning and the unconscious bias uh, coming out, you know, yes. and, and to make it conscious then is half of my job. You know, the other half is like, you know, pushing forward those, the dark horses, the, the p- potential unicorns um, who wouldn't get the time of day otherwise. Uh, and that's really a fundamental shift. You know, it's really a fundamental shift that takes a lot of work. And within the, within the corporate space, you've already talked about pay, hire women, pay them, upskill them, educate. There must be some examples of companies that are doing it well. Um, do, you, do you have any uh, uh, companies in mind? You don't necessarily need to mention names if, if, if that's not appropriate, but what, what are companies that are doing it and doing it well? What are they doing? I mean, I want to mention names, you yeah. know, because it's like, hey, go work for Salesforce. You know, okay. go work for, um, no, I'm, I always get, um, mixed up, but, uh, because it's Verizon in the U.S. and Vodafone. Okay. Vodafone in India. Or, I mean, and actually they're, re- they're much more active in that part of the world, right? Than in this, than in the U.S., obviously, mm-hmm. uh, for one. But, um, they have really gotten into this, you know, the maturity curve I mentioned in terms of inclusion, starting out with, Things like, um, of course, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave, uh, and then, and then, um, you know, that whole reentry program. So women who have gone out of our workforce that we're trying to bring back in and keep them as a valued resource because women tend to be more loyal, which cuts costs over time, right? Um, and now they're really at the stage of we're looking at our middle and senior management, and we have no women that we can even move into um, executive management. So they're going outside of their organization and have targets of like 40% external hires of women into leadership roles. And that's like, I can tell you, that's like completely mind blowing, because Mm -hmm. that means they would even look at people like me. Whereas most people would be like, oh, she lived all over the world. What is she live these gaps in her resume? I don't like this. I mean, and that's, you know, again, the abrasive, you know, all those things that, uh, you know, seen from a different perspective are, are, can be assets, right? Entrepreneurial, uh, risk, risk oriented, um, you know, still managing and growing a startup. Um, but that's the fear factor, um, be, depending on your, your, um, unconscious biases. So I think that for me is really a is really a, a, a new benchmark to be hiring outside of the company to bring in women with experience and and mature women who are the ones who are systemically 
relegated to to the sidelines by the corporate infrastructure, let's say, because again, these statistics that have been around for decades, um, mm-hmm. as long as McKenzie has been tracking it, um, 80% of women are marginalized by traditional career paths. 80%. And these I, are the women you know, you know? So where yeah. are they? What are they doing? I'm going after them to try to get them to do startup. But I think companies, it makes sense to look around and bring them into your organization, you know, especially if they're doing doing anything entrepreneurial. It might be frightening. That might be your first reaction. Eeks, yikes. Yeah, because this is a, an entity with whom we are not familiar. But it's exactly that, that that brings the added value. And it opens, you know, like I say, it's the edge of the wedge for for greater inclusion and greater diversity, greater innovation. Um, and, you know, stuff that com- brings us back to that that planet people profit vision. And that is also proven in the research that, that women play a really big role in making that happen. I'm wondering, um, when, we have a lot more women as CEOs than we did, say, 20 years ago of top technology firms. When a, when a woman is a CEO or even at the board level, if you have more women at a board level, how much difference is that making with inclusivity within an organization? Um, you know, it's a, that's a mixed bag, to be frank. And when you say a lot more, I think in Europe, we're talking like 4% of CEOs are women. And that's already like magnitude I mean, in comparison better. to what it was before. I'm not saying it's an yeah, overall percentage. Yeah, yeah. It's magnitudes better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and board roles, this is, you know, questionable in terms of what the decision-making impact is. However, uh, you know, I've been giving a talk. I think I, I even did a TEDx talk um, 10 years ago. That talked about what the impact of, you know, of investment, um, uh, okay, innovation, uh, profit, but also, um, I want to say social orientation of, of, of a company that has a woman in a, in a CEO, in a leadership decision making position. So I think there may even, there may even be research in terms of how that translates to the bottom line. And you can look at those, uh, it's kind of like the Bechtel test for the movies, right? The, the test where you have, you can actually go online and add content to the database yourself just by answering these three or four questions. Are there more than, uh, more than one woman in the main character suite? Do they talk to each other about something other than a man? Okay. So three questions. That's the Bechtel test. Um, and what at one point Kate Blanchett, I guess when she was, ex- you know, accepting another Oscar. She said, you know, I bet that those Bechdel movies, so the ones that do achieve those criteria, I bet they per- perform better at the box office. And someone ran behind her and, and crunched the data. And that turned out to be the case. It's kind of anecdotal, you know, whatever. It's definitely not mainstream knowledge. It's not mainstream thinking. Uh, but it's definitely motivating. You know, if you're a decision maker and you, you want to be an innovative organization, and you are focused on the bottom line, which we all are, um, then that's really a perspective to to delve into and to take on board actively. Cheryl Miller, such important work you're doing. How can our listeners follow what you're um, uh, writing and talking about? What are the best social channels to follow you on? You know, it's been my own response to COVID to kind of (laughs) bring down my social outreach a notch. So mainly I'm on LinkedIn now, I've got okay. to say. And and if I do things like this, I love to share it there. 
because I think this is our posse. Maybe this is also where you found me. So linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Miller Van Dyke, which is M-I-L-L-E-R-V-A-N-D-Y-C-K. Okay, thank you. And and you'd mentioned that you are working on a book. I keep being asked to share uh, share chapters, but I'm not. I haven't started writing the actual book myself okay. yet. Again, bandwidth, but I will yeah. definitely keep you posted on my progress. We would love to hear about that and have you back if uh, you you would be uh, happy to come back to just talk about uh, your book when that comes out. Absolutely, as well. absolutely, yeah, David. Cheryl, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. All right, that's a wrap for this episode of Coding Over Cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! <laughs>